Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. We're here every Saturday, as you're well aware, to promote and to defend public education. Let's just remind you, that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access. It's open to all children, teachers, employees, etc., cleaners, whatever. And as well as that, we believe that it should be publicly owned and controlled because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. And for that reason, for all those reasons, we also believe that it's the only one that should be publicly funded. Uh, but uh, we're a bit out of kilter with the uh, economic paradigm of the times, namely neoliberalism, and we'll be talking about that a bit later. But this afternoon's program, we're going to be talking about curriculum because Mr Dutton has been sounding off about values. And anybody who's been around for a while should be asking, what's Mr Dutton got to do with what's taught in our classrooms? He's in the uh, federal government and public schools are under the state government. How come he thinks he's got the power to determine what goes on in our classrooms? Well, listeners, part of the problem is he just might have. And they, uh, the, the, the situation about what's happening to our curriculum from Canberra is something that we'll be talking about today uh, because the Saturday papers had a very interesting article about it. And a lot of teachers have been concerned about it for some time. Uh, so, uh, and Dale will be bringing us a very interesting press release on this. And Sorrel's also going to tell us what the AU believes should happen with the uh, government schools review. Uh, Peter's here today, and he's going to be talking about neoliberal ideas and how they've damaged uh, education in Australia. And, and uh, Jeff, of course, will take us off to America. He's got a really interesting article. And um, our great state school is in Maddie's hands. But um, let's get on with it, shall we? Dale and Sorrel, over to you with press release 945. Thank you, Jean. So as you were saying, uh, Mr Dunn was reported in The Australian of July 2nd to 3rd, 2022, as saying that education will be a key battleground for the coalition as it seeks to reassert Liberal Party values following its election loss. But instead of perhaps reasserting the Gonski needs policy, as Simon Birmingham attempted to do, instead of even considering the growing inequalities in funding policy, Dutton plans to follow the new right in America and attack curriculum values. He is calling for a debate over the national curriculum that he says is at risk of being hijacked by unions and activists. The problem is the curriculum has already been hijacked by the previous coalition federal government. Since the 1990s, the coalition under Howard have been attempting to gain control of the national curriculum, hijacking it out of the hands of the state education departments and the schools themselves. They have been on a crusade to control what values are taught in our schools. 
The imposition of the chaplaincy program on our public schools was one strategy used by the Howard government, but continued by all federal governments since to promote their particular values. But further centralized control of the curriculum has also been assisted by the Labor government, which established the administrative infrastructure and established ACARA, the Australian Curriculum and Assessment Authority. Rick Morton of the Saturday paper of the 9th to 15th of July, however, has revealed leaked documents that show the damage already done by the coalition before they left office, in particular to the history curriculum. Over to you, Dale, to tell us more about this article. Thanks, Sorrel. Yes, the Saturday paper did have an article by Rick Morton about Peter Dutton uh, using attacks on education to rebuild their uh party base and um, he was quoted as pushing bullshit. Uh, Leaked documents reveal Dutton's education farce. So Peter Dutton's attempt to reignite the education wars ignores a key point of very modern history. It was the coalition that signed off on the revised national curriculum in April, just days before the federal election was called. Education ministers across Australia had also met in February to consider and pass the draft curriculum, but the federal government and Western Australia, for different reasons, demanded more work on two key subject areas, mathematics and history. After that meeting, Acting Federal Education Minister Stuart Robert wrote to Derek Scott, the chair of ACARA, Uh, about a more balanced view of Australian history and asked that further revisions be made. Specifically, Robert urged effort to ensure key aspects of Australian history, namely 1750 to 1914 and Australia's post-World War II migrant history, are appropriately prioritised and can be taught within the time available. Leaked documents obtained by the Saturday paper from the subsequent April meeting of ministers that endorsed the rushed changes, including briefing papers prepared for those ministers, showed how radical some of the changes were. One document shows that there was a 55% cut to the content of the years 7 to 10 history curriculum as part of the so-called decluttering process in the review with the vast majority of these required teaching strands being taken out in the draft curriculum that went to the February meeting. However, following the coalition's intervention, a further 11 mandatory substrands were removed between February and April. Similarly, civics and citizenship content was reduced by one quarter, with another four strands cut after Stuart Roberts' entreaties. The Saturday paper can reveal the Australian government under Scott Morrison's leadership attempted to have references to invasion taken out of the curriculum regarding First Peoples whose land was never ceded to British colonisers. Under the heading Restructure to Prioritise Australian History in Year 9 and 10, ACARA provided a table to the April Minister's meeting that showed it had accepted parts of Robert's pleading letter verbatim. A new history substrand for Year 9, not present in the February draft, is Making and Transforming Australia 1750 to 1914. The content feature is a mandatory requirement alongside the teaching of World War I, 
while two other substrands about Asia and the world and the Industrial Revolution and the movement of people have become optional. For Year 10 students, a new strand called Building Modern Australia was added as a required field study, while a third strand, the Globalising World, was made optional. Reference to the potential study of popular culture, migration experiences or the environment movement were deleted entirely. The Saturday paper can reveal yeah, that references to invasion were taken out of the curriculum regarding First Peoples lands, whose sovereignty was never ceded, and that's, that's just a given. Um, under a table headed key and contentious issues, this matter was summarised by the curriculum authority, but largely battered away because it was almost always used in the context of discussing the contestability of terms and the different perspectives of historical events. The, quote, the term invasion is not used as the single accepted or standard term used to describe European contact and occupation of Australia, the ACARA document obtained by the Saturday paper says. There is one instance of the term invasion being used in a way that is not in the context of learning about contested terms and different perspectives on historical events. This occurs in the following non-mandatory content elaboration for the strand, The Making of the Modern World. In the draft, students were asked to analyse impact of invasion, colonisation and dispossession of lands by Europeans on the First Nations people of Australia. But this has now been changed to a new version of the curriculum. Now, Year 9 students might might learn about how the occupation and colonisation of Australia by the British under the now overturned doctrine of terra nullius were experienced by First Nation Australians as an invasion that denied their occupation of and connection to country and place. Another key issue summarised by ACARA is that there are no references to Judeo-Christian in the current curriculum. And although there were some pre-existing mentions of Christian heritage in the original curriculum, ACARA made additional changes to satisfy the Morrison government. The final document says revised civics and citizenship curriculum includes the additional content elaboration appreciating the cultural and historical foundations of Australia's Christian heritage and their impact on Australian values. In an interview with The Australian at the weekend, Dutton nominated education as a key battleground on which he intended to rebuild the Liberal Party. He said parents were concerned that education was being driven by unions and other activists. Dutton framed this as a matter of choice. There's been a bewilderment by some parents in terms of what they see their kids coming home with. At the same time, education outcomes have declined in our country. This is a debate parents want to have, and we want to contribute to that based on the values of our party. He doesn't say, does he, these, the, the, the education values have declined on his watch on Morrison's watch. And uh, this is a big distraction from the unfair funding problems that uh, our public schools confront. Um, it's it's uh, very, very interesting, uh, but I think myself that he's uh, 
thinking that the next election is going to be a bit like the ones they have in America. But we'll hear more from Jeff on that later. Well, on Monday, Alan Tudge, who served as Education Minister in the former coalition government before standing aside at the end of last year, and who's also retained the portfolio in opposition, said the coalition had some success in rewriting parts of the national curriculum, but it was not enough. I still want to see more positive, optimistic view of Australia's history, Tudge told Sky News. There are opportunities for further improvements to the national curriculum and more are going to be needed. I, I want to ensure that is the case, that when students come out of school, they really understand how the fact that Australia is one of the wealthiest, freest, most egalitarian and most tolerant societies that's ever existed in all of human history and the origins of that and how we became that. Because if they don't deeply understand those things, and many don't, then they're not going to properly defend it. I think there's still a lot more work that we can do on that front. Oh, my goodness. So does this mean that Mr Tudge wants to make our children into cannon fodder for the next world war Good little patriots. It's nationalism and just completely disregards the intergenerational trauma that's still continuing to this day in the crime scene that is Australia. Uh, Although the final curriculum was endorsed in April, the coalition's threats to agitate on the education issue are not idle. At the, at the same meeting, ministers resolved to do away with the six yearly reviews of the national curriculum in favour of a real-time watching brief, allowing for updates as and when agreed. Tudge, who said this change was led by the Commonwealth, intends to use this new feature, although it has not been locked in yet. The Curriculum Authority will evaluate these review processes and report back to ministers by the end of the year. ACARA Chief Executive David DiCavello said in a statement to the newspaper, to this newspaper, the Saturday paper, that the updated Australian curriculum was endorsed by all education ministers in April this year and is now live on the new Australian curriculum website. Implementation is the responsibility of states and territories, so they decide when their schools will implement the new curriculum, he said. Teachers will also, teachers will use the curriculum to develop teaching and learning programs, taking into account their local context and the diverse needs of their students. Senator Holly Hughes began the coalition's attacks on education in a speech to the Sydney Institute on June 22nd, blaming the low conservative youth vote on left-wing rubbish being taught in schools. We have got an education system that is basically run by Marxists, she said. I think it's time some teachers and others took these people of the defamation. There's no evidence that our teachers are all Marxists. It's ridiculous. They talk about tolerance and now we're getting a new group of young people who understand that difference isn't to be tolerated, is to be celebrated. But the dinosaurs don't want that. They don't like progressive thought uh, and acceptance of and celebration of diversity. What's worrying about all of this is that it looks as if the politicians are deciding what is going on in our classrooms rather than the specialists. Where are the actual historians in all of this? Where are the people who actually know their history? Where are the anthropologists and where are the archaeologists? I would have thought that they were the people who should be drawing up the curriculum, not Mr Dutton and uh, this Holly lady 
old Mr. Certainly not Mr. Tudge, given his background. Um, it's a bit of a worry, isn't it? It is. Well, Holly Hughes went on to say that uh, when you've got a problem with your education system, it's going to take a generation to fix it. Maybe their parents need to turn the internet off for one hour a day, stop allowing them to use the car and get public transport. Just mind-boggling. Neither Tudge nor Hughes uh, responded to a request from the Saturday paper to name specific problems with the current national curriculum approved by the former Morrison government. One source involved in, in the briefings for the Education Minister's meeting in February and April told the Saturday paper that the Coalition were in the room when the curriculum was endorsed. They chaired the meetings. If they want to turn around now and say that the national curriculum isn't good enough, they're going to have to tell everyone exactly what they propose changing, the person said. Frankly, it's a waste of everyone's time if they keep pushing this bullshit. After the February meeting, Robert wrote to Akara and nominated several experts to contribute to the curriculum. The Saturday paper can reveal those names included Dr David Hastie, a Christian school stalwart, Dr. Laura Rademacher, an ANU research associate whose work looks at the interaction between Christian missionaries and First Nations peoples, and historian Jonathan Dallimore. In a June article for the Bible Society, Australia publication Eternity, Hasty noted that there was an almost entire absence of religion in the foundation to year six curriculum. And even though things were better in year seven to 10 portion, it was still alarmingly less than was historically accurate. That changed with this, with his input. It is notable, he wrote, that these changes were added without demur by Akara, recognised as just historically accurate. Further evidence that the curriculum writers were not particularly doctrinaire in the initial absence of Christianity in version 8. During consultation by the Curriculum Authority, some people and groups were outright opposed to an expanded focus on First Nations history. The most prominent issue talked about in open-ended feedback concerned the stronger focus on First Nation perspectives in the history curriculum, says a report on feedback prepared by the University of Queensland. There was considerable support and praise for this, which was sometimes qualified by statements that alerted to needing to retain a balance that adequately includes Western and other historical content in the curriculum. A small group of respondents were also outright opposed to this component of the revised curriculum. Of the 11,894 email submissions received by ACARA during consultation on the humanities and social sciences learning area, almost all of them, 11,458, were from a mass template email service called One Click Politics, which boasts the National Rifle Association in the United States as a major client. A further 251 submissions also appeared to be based on templates, although sent from different email addresses. Another three emails came with altogether 302 signatures. The content of these submissions centred around the Judeo-Christian heritage and the role of Western civilization in the curriculum, the feedback report says. Some of the respondents, mostly sole respondents, raised concerns about the balance of content, in particular requesting greater inclusion of content around the role of Christianity in Australia, while most acknowledged the importance of including the impact of First Nations Australians. 
Although individual names were not listed in the consultation reports, it is instructive to look at the organisations and groups who did provide feedback to both the history subject and the cross-curriculum priority areas, which aim to embed information on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures across all subjects. So it seems, it seems that they're not content, they're not content with just telling a car what they should do. They're going to stack the curriculum board with experts who have their own uh, view of the world. Um, and uh, some of these views are very like what's going on in America, the, um, the extreme right-wing views that are going on in America. This is actually very worrying for a lot of parents in our public schools, I would think. Um, that this is even possible because for years and years we have just expected that in our state departments there are curriculum experts who decide what our children are going to be taught and we have been quite content with what has been going on in our classrooms for many years. Mm. But it's fascinating that it is history and religion that are the topics that are, are um, under, under um, consultation here that they want to control yeah. uh, in, in our children's minds. I find it very interesting indeed. Yeah. Look, the article uh, is quite lengthy, so if you'd like to check it out, check out the Saturday paper. Labor's Minister for Education, Jason Clare, was approached for comment by the article, but he didn't respond in time for the deadline. But uh, there is the dogs do have a comment about this, so I'll, I'll pass back over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Dale. So the dog's comment on this is that for 150 years, the private sector have derided our public systems for being too centralised and demanded they be permitted at public expense to teach according to their particular religious values. They have not only succeeded in raiding the public treasuries to the tune of billions of dollars per annum, their political representatives are now attempting to impose those views on the public system. In the 21st century, we now discover we have a highly centralised administration in Canberra which determines what our children are taught in school, and we are confronted with Dutton, the leader of the rump of the Liberal Party, echoing the values of the extreme American right. Parents and teachers need to carefully watch this space. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sol and Dale, for bringing attention to what is actually happening uh, under the coalition government. And uh, Mr Clare is not going to do anything about it at the moment and how things are actually panning out uh, in Canberra with ACARA. But um, we'll have a bit of a break now and we'll come back then uh, to find out what the AEU has been up to. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.
yes, well, here we are back with the, uh, the dogs program and um, we try to keep you informed as to what's going on around Australia and what is going on around Australia is that uh, the state governments are losing less and less control of their education systems, our public education systems, and Canberra is getting more and more control over policy as well as funding and even what is actually taught in our schools as we have just uh, discovered. Now, um, they also uh, are very interested, or we're very interested, of course, in funding and the different agreements. There is a national schools reform agreement, which is on the cards, but the problem is that um, once again, uh, nobody's talking about funding. The Albanese government might be doing some interesting things in uh, as far as our foreign policy is concerned, but as far as our education system is concerned, they're playing it very close to the chest indeed, and public schools and public school supporters are getting a bit rescued. The, the natives are rescued. So uh, let's hear from um, Sorrel on all of this. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. So this is the Australian Education Union's media release that is entitled Government Schools Review Must Consider Funding. The Australian Education Union is urging the federal government to ensure school funding is a key consideration of the review of the National Schools Reform Agreement. The National Schools Reform Agreement is the foundation for bilateral agreements between the Commonwealth and the states and territories, setting out goals for student performance and outcomes for students with additional needs and minimum funding contributions. The Productivity Commission is currently conducting a review of the NSRA. However, the terms of reference exclude any consideration of funding. The current review is hamstrung by the very agreement it is considering. There is a clear link between student outcomes and funding, Federal President Karina Haythorpe said. Any consideration of student performance and the outcomes for students with disability, First Nations students, and other students experiencing disadvantage requires a comprehensive consideration of the underfunding of public schools, which is entrenched in the agreements associated with the NSRA for every state and territory. The current agreements are so deeply flawed because they leave public schools below the minimum funding standards set out in the 2012 Gonski Review and they were developed without any reference to the teaching profession, the very people who have to implement the priorities they set. The recurrent funding shortfall has a direct impact on the ability of schools to deliver the reforms set out in the NSRA, as well as their ability to ensure ongoing staffing and resources for the delivery of learning and support programs for students. The present NSRA expires at the end of 2023 and negotiations for agreements covering 2024 to 2029 are expected to commence later this year. There is still an opportunity for the federal government to recraft the Productivity Commission review to include funding, Ms Haythorpe said. We also urge the federal government to consult directly with the teaching profession through the union and to update the terms of reference to ensure a thorough examination of the direct relationship between funding, equity and student outcomes. Well, that's going to be very interesting. 
indeed to see exactly what Mr Albanese is going to do about the quite shocking situation of uh, the funding of education in Australia. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back uh, to talk about neoliberalism with Peter. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. la fuerza en la comunidad keep community strong el cantalelo time to donate 3CR Radio Thong 2022 el cantalelo time to donate 3CR Radio Thong 2022 Radio Thong need you now go to 3cr.org.au And if for some reason you didn't understand all that, it's Radio Don 2022. It's time to donate. To do this, go to www.3cr.org.au and pledge your donation. We love you. We need you. Keep the community strong. And you're still listening to the, the Dogs Program, and uh, we're here to defend and promote public education. Uh, public education in Australia fell into trouble back in the 60s when state aid to private schools started again, and uh, it's been on the back foot ever since. But um, the worst things happened actually under Mr Hawke and Mr Keating when they embraced the neoliberal ideas of Thatcher and Reagan. And uh, neoliberalism has been causing problems for public education since the 1980s, and we're still in it. Now, there is a gentleman over in Adelaide who's been writing a book about this, uh, the effect of um, neoliberalism on education in Australia. His name is uh, Mr Reid, and he got out a book in 2019, and Peter's going to tell us about this book. He's going to read to us a review of the book. Uh, how neoliberal ideas have damaged education in Australia. Over to you, Peter. Oh, yes, thank you, Jane. I think this uh, continues on the theme of where we're uh, looking at the uh, influence of politicians and, in this case, managers on the education system with the marginalisation 
of uh, educators and, and teachers and curriculum designers. Correct. So this is another element in, the, in that story. So it's about how neoliberal ideas have damaged education in Australia. And this is uh, published um, in a, a book by uh, Professor Alan Reid from the University of South Australia. Uh, and uh, this is an article from October 2019. They say, hindsight is the best teacher for one of Australia's leading educators and curriculum experts, the University of South Australia's Professor Alan Reid. The perspective on policy approaches the Australian education system over the past 40 years has been a bit depressing. In a penetrating new book, Changing Australian Education, How Policy is Taking Us Backwards and What Can Be Done About It, Professor Reid shows how the marketization of the school education system has delivered poorer results for students, widened the gap between privileged and underprivileged student cohorts and been a catalyst for quality educators, sorry, teachers to leave the profession in droves. Drawing from his long experience as a teacher, teacher educator and policy and curriculum researcher, Professor Reed documents the rise of managerialism, KPIs, and the competition in the school system where time and resources are increasingly spent reporting to arbitrary tests and measures of attainment rather than the real business of educating students for collaborative, flexible career futures that will favour creative, adaptable minds. And as a series of questions are now being asked about the role of the NAP plan, that is the National Assessment Plan for Literacy and Numeracy, where Australian results have generally stagnated. Professor Reid believes much can be done to ensure new generations of Australian children will have access to a better education. I quote, educating children to be able to navigate what is one of the most rapidly changing eras in history will require more from the system than reaching targeted scores for maths, science and reading. And quotation continued, it is not that performance on these measures don't matter at all, but they are certainly not the only thing that matters. Structuring an education system to deliver on these targets alone is so narrow that we're at risk of failing to prepare uh, children for challenging the future, where the advance of AI and the revolution that is industry 4.0 will fundamentally alter our, and our notions of employment and careers. Professor, unquote, Professor Reid you know, says innovation in education is still happening with passionate teachers struggling to deliver more than the basics, almost despite restrictive and competitive system that bears down on them to constantly narrow the focus and to deliver misguided KPIs. In the book, he challenges us to ask what we want and need from an education system, posing the fundamental question, what is the purpose 
of education. He outlines four major purchase uh, purposes of education. First, to develop each child to their fullest potential, to develop students to successfully enter the workforce, to develop them to be able to participate as citizens in a democracy, and to develop them to participate as members of a social and cultural community. Good quote, good test scores for reading, maths and science just don't cut in delivering on those goals. We need children to learn how to adapt to change, how to work collaboratively, how to take learning from one discipline, apply it to, in a different context. We need to be able to teach them to use their creative capacities to unsolve problems, unquote. In framing a new policy approach to education in Australia, Professor Reed believes that it is time to re-engage with the highly skilled, knowledgeable and experienced teaching workforce. Quote, we have seen teachers increasingly sidelined in the debate over education. Where once their role was valued and respected today, the politics around educational outcomes has served to marginalise them from the education debate or vilify them and dis disempower them. It is in this context research, a number of research studies point to 40 to 50% of newly qualified teachers leave the profession within five years. Something further uh, serves to break down school communities, unquote. He says, increasingly, the decision makers in education have no experience in the profession and take a product-based approach to developing and marketing education. Further quote, in an education environment where competitive yet arbitrary skills measurement is the main discourse, where public education system is considered a safety net for people who can't afford private school education and where competition between schools is normalized, we are in danger of making our own children a part of a product chain, he says. We need to write a new narrative for education, one that offers the best hope for new generations to deal with the kinds of environment, economic, technological, democratic and social changes that we will face in the future. And that concludes that extract from his book, it seems that we want to put teachers and educators back in control of the education system, Jean. Yes, well, what happened, of course, in the 80s was that uh, they, they came up with the idea of self-managed schools and the career choices of teachers were limited to just becoming principals. So a lot of the um, bureaucrats have never been or seen inside uh, a classroom. So you have the managerials running the system uh, on neoliberal principles. Uh, it happened uh, during the 1980s when uh, the neoliberal idea uh, became the paradigm, unfortunately, of our economic system. But we'll have a bit of a break and uh, we'll come back to some uh, very interesting material from America.
Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Well, we're going to go off to America and uh, we're going to be talking about a very famous educator called Maria Montessori, who um, had some very good ideas. In fact, uh, the New South Wales infants teachers were all taught the Montessori method. But unfortunately, uh, in our neoliberal marketisation days, uh, Montessoriism, if you want to call that, has become a bit of a fad. Over to you, Jeff. Well, thanks, Jean. Uh, yes, well, it gets, to, gets us to America eventually. This is an article from Jessica Winter by Jessica Winter, and she's writing in the New Yorker and on March the 3rd uh, this year. And this is about, this is called The Miseducation of Maria Montessori. Her method was meant for the public, then it became a privilege. So um, I'm, I might have to abbreviate this a little bit. It's quite a long article, but let me, let me, let me read it out because it's, it's a great article. When my daughter was little, I became fixated on a schoolhouse a few blocks from our apartment, a Tudor-style storybook cottage with red trim and brick chimney and playground all of wood. Its first floor windows were concealed by tall bushes of a deep, impossible green, and everything that a childhood should be was waiting for my daughter behind them, or so I, I believed. When I went inside, my expectations were met. The children, aged two to six, were serious and serene, occasionally speaking to each other in low, considerate tones. They stacked blocks, strung beads and arranged letterboards. And of course, I'd seen these kinds of blocks and beads um, on boards before, but never these specific, exquisite renderings of them. When it was time for walking the line, a morning custom in which the children followed a line of tape on the floor, around and around, silent and judiciously spaced, I felt overcome by a sense of dazed compliance. This was our local Montessori school, and I had convinced myself that with a bit of scrimping and bootstrapping, I could somehow find the money to send my daughter there. I scheduled her required interview. Afterward, the director told me, oh, she's a dream. And in that moment, I would have signed a Sea Org co contract in, in exchange for a year of my child's enrolment. But when I reviewed the numbers the following weekend, I concluded that I could, that I could pay the tuition only if I went into credit card debt. And really, if that qualifies as being able to afford something, what can't you afford? I withdrew her application and to self-soothe, self I bought a Montessori-ish hundred-piece counting board for her off Amazon. She barely touched it and I gave it away after her toddler brother expressed an interest in eating the numbers. For the Montessori curious parent on the budget, there is a consolation the wide and lasting influence of the movement's founder, Maria Montessori, the Italian physician and educator, whose ideas and innovations are ubiquitous, even in the preschools that do not bear her name. The eschewing of individual desks in favour of mats and child-sized tables, the primacy of hands-on learning, daily observances such as circle time when children sit cross-legged on a rug to share news and participate in group lessons. 
and choice time when children busy themselves at various classroom centres for art, music, tower building and so on. All of these elements of early childhood education are indebted to Montessori's philosophy. At the turn of the 20th century, it was revolutionary to think that a child's education could be child-centred, shaped according to his or her actual brain and body. Montessori and her many disciples made this common sense. What's more, they believed something that still seems counterintuitive today, that children are in their essence methodical, self-directed beings with a strong work ethic, perfectly capable of deep concentration, and that their tendency towards inattention and disruption can be a reasonable response to disharmonious surroundings. As Christina de Stefano writes in The Child as a Teacher, Other Press, a new biography of Montessori, children placed in the right environment, provided with the right materials, soon stop being agitated and noisy and are transformed into quiet creatures, calm, happy to work. This most orderly and tranquil of educational philosophies has had its beginnings in the most grim and chaotic of circumstances. In 1897, Montessori, one of the first women in Italy to earn a med medical degree, had recently graduated from the University of Rome and was volunteering at the school's psychiatric clinic, where her responsibilities entailed visits to the city's ghastly insane asylums. At the time, the mental illness was wide, widely viewed by Catholics as a form of divine retribution. But Montessori had became attached to the children who lived in the asylums, many of whom had been committed owing to disabilities, other, although others simply suffered from malnutrition or neglect. Her interest in the children led her to the writings of special education pioneer, Edouard Segun. Now, I have to say, if you like The Goon Show, I think this guy's the inspiration for Nettie Segun, uh, who, uh, uh, but um, I digress. Edouard Seguin, who employed balls, blocks, beads, buttons, and everyday tools in his work with asylum children in Paris. And of Friedrich Freubel, the German educator who originated the concept of kindergarten and gave his name to the toys known as Freubel gifts, balls of yarn, wooden spheres and cylinders. Sigun and Freubel, Freubel understood that children's desire to touch and manipulate everything around them, easily mistaken as behaviour to be managed, might be better off seen as self-education. In 1900, at the age of 29, Montessori became a co-director of the Orthophrenic School in Rome, the nation's first training institute for special education teachers. The trainees worked with students who were selected from the asylums or who had been unable to keep up at state schools. For two years, Montessori taught students and teachers for upward of 11 hours a day, then worked late into the night reading, writing and sketching plans for her own Froebel-inspired gifts. Some of her students, amazingly, went on to pass the same primary school exams as their mainstream peers, although Montessori shrugged off the results. The strong performance of her little idiots, as she called them, was more an indictment of the state school system than it was an endorsement of her pedagogy, she said. The orthophrenic school was also a key plot point in a cascading personal melodrama. Montessori had fallen in love with her co-director, Giuseppe Montesano, and given birth in secret to their son. The child was whisked off to a wet nurse in the countryside. Montesano married another woman and Montessori, finding proximity to her ex-lover unbearable, resigned her position at the school. In this moment, Dr. Stefano writes, she lost everything she had done for special education, the mission for which she had given up her son at birth. Such a sacrifice would undoubtedly 
provide the tragic pivot for the Oscar bait biopic of Montessori's life, but it's not entirely reflective of actual events. After she resigned, she pursued anthropological research in mainstream public schools, finished translating some 600 pages of Sigun's writings into Italian, and took an appointment at the University of Rome, where she gave lectures that proposed practical foundations of a far-reaching reform in our schools. She was reunited with her son, Mario, when he was a teenager and as an adult became one of her closest collaborators. The chance to pursue that reform came in 1906, when Montessori, now an educator of some renown, gained the backing of a group of Roman financiers. The next year, on the day of the Feast of the Epiphany, she opened her first schoolroom, the Casa dei Bambini, or Children's House, in the tenement of San Lorenzo, a working-class neighbourhood with high rates of poverty. The building superintendent's daughter was put nominally in charge, overseeing about 50 children ages two to six in activities such as button fastening, water pouring, and drawing with colored pencils. The, the schools multiplied in Italy and then across Europe, often finding their most hospitable environments in regions with a strong socialist presence. At the Casa dei Bambini in Naples, some of the pupils were so poor that they weren't familiar with the utensils they set out at mealtime. In France, Montessori classes were set up expressly to aid children who'd been traumatised by the First World War. And yet these children, despite their deprivation, evinced a stunning response to Montessori's methods. In particular, they made rapid and enthusiastic progress in their writing skills, encouraged by a system, movable letters, cut from sandpaper and pasted on boards, that was based on play rather than rote memorization. Montessori had found the contours of her philosophy and she detailed them in her first book, which was published as The Montessori Method, in America in 1912. It was prophetic in ways that remain uncanny. Her schoolrooms did away with rewards and punishments. Among, among her many rebukes to the heaven or hell end game of the Catholic Church and aimed to instill intrinsic motivation and self-regulation. Self Concepts promoted by the wildly popular parenting gurus of today, such as Janet Lansbury and Dr. Becky. In her laments that teenagers are subject to the small-minded blackmail of the bad grade, Montessori anticipated the gradeless movement in schools and the opt-out movement for standardised tests and a wealth of literature indicating that a focus on grades and tests can discourage meaningful learning. And in her assertion that in Dr. Stefano's words, authoritarianism and competition, the ingredients of school as traditionally conceived, create violence. Montessori foresaw aspects of the school to prison pipeline. The child, a free human being, must teach us and teach society order, calm, discipline and harmony, Montessori wrote. In some ways, the engine of her method was a paradox. Order is freedom and vice versa. The teacher is subordinate to the child, but powerfully so. A child must be left to her own devices, but left to them systematically, and the devices shall be made of wood. Dr. Stefano's American, American and Italian publishers have stated in their promotional materials and jacket copy that The Child as the Teacher is the first biographical work on Maria Montessori written by an author who is not a member of the Montessori movement, but who has been granted access to original letters, diaries, notes, and texts written by Montessori herself. It's a curious claim, given that the journalist Rita Kramer published a biography in 1976 that drew on the archive of the association Montessori Internationale, and after interviews with Mario and other family members. In her afterword, De Stefano waves away the book as solid but dated, and yet her own biography seems at times a kind of digest of Kramer's, recapitulating the same events and pulling from the same sack of anecdotes and quotations, but often stripping them of historical, cultural or pedagogical context. What De Stefano does 
to bring her subject is a distinct style. She recounts Montessori's life as a declamatory, sometimes hyperbolic present tense, beginning with a young Maria sitting in a classroom in Rome in 1876, but is like all the others in the kingdom of Italy, a prison for children. When Maria reads aloud to her class, she makes everybody cry, really, everybody? The chapters are short and the pace is brisk. Maria is interviewing for a medical school on, a page, on page 11. She seems to glow alone in the darkness. She has very few forebears. The exception is Seguin, whom De Stefano devotes two chapters and change, and no afterlife. When she dies, the book is done. And what is Maria Montessori's afterlife? De Stefano criticises unnamed sceptics who believe that Montessori's ideas cannot be applied in schools for the masses, that they work only with the children of the rich who attend private schools. Yet the obvious irony of Montessori's crusade on behalf of the poorest and least powerful in society is that its most visible legacy is selective private schools for the elite. Yes, and this is what I found quite extraordinary here in Australia at the moment, uh, at least in, in, in Victoria. Montessori schools are for the elite or the insecure parents um, who, who uh, want something special. Or Whereas who for years and years and years up in New South Wales, all of the uh, infants' mistresses and infants' teachers at the Sydney Teachers College, um, certainly from oh, many, many times, uh, have been given the Montessori method. Um, the, the, the infants teachers in New South Wales were Montessori teachers in our yeah. public schools. And we've seen recently other schools like the Scientologists masquerading as Montessori schools. They've got yeah. a good name. Yeah. Uh, and this is what they're building on. You have to continue, if you like. Um, no, I think well, our time is going out, so I'm afraid we have to leave it there and we'll come back to it next week, Jeff, because okay. Montessori is very important in the history of education oh, because we we've got that. our great state school, haven't we, Maddie? Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And our great state school of this week is Malmesbury Primary School. Congratulations, Malmesbury Primary School. Malmesbury Primary School is located 95 kilometres northwest of Melbourne, 10 kilometres northwest of Kitten, and around 70 kilometres southeast of Bendigo. Uh, many of their parents choose to drive from neighbouring towns to enable their children to attend Malmesbury Primary School. I'm going to throw some facts and figures at you now. This school has 82 pupils. The ICSIA value of the school is 1,027, which is above the average of 1,000. The students have a broad range of parental income. 17% have parents from the upper quartile, 31% in the second highest, 29% from the third quartile, and 23% from the poorest 25% of the community. 4% of the pupils speak a language other than English and 2% are of Indigenous parentage. Since it's a small school, it costs the ta taxpayer $15,000, which is above the Gonski resource standard, to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $274,000 from the federal government and $879,000 from the state government, $11,000 from fees and $28,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only $48,000. 
All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results indicate improvement above average um, between the years three to five. So congratulations to all the dedicated staff at this school in Malmesbury. You are our great state school of the week. Oh, thank you, Maddie. And it's not that far from Melbourne either. Malmesbury is a lovely little town and it's got a very good bakery, which uh, most people don't always know about. But I think uh, people might be interested. It's got a lovely school and it's got a lovely bakery. So our time is gone and uh, you've been listening to the Dogs Program and we hope that you'll keep listening to 3CR and be back with us at 12 noon Saturday next week. If you want to find out more about us, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But from all of us here, from Dale and from Jeff and from Sol and from Peter and from Maddie, it's bye for now.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.